Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. I'm happy to be joined by Lance Dovsky, CISO of Quintilian Subsea Operations. Lance is a highly respected security executive and veteran of the United States Air Force. Lance has developed and led risk and security programs for the global Fortune 1000, critical infrastructure, telecommunications, and the United States of America. This episode, he will share with us insights and lessons learned from securing one of the largest subsea infrastructures in the world. Lance, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. It's been way too long. <laughs> the time does fly. Last time we did something like this together, it was during RSA circa 2015, 2016. Yeah, somewhere in that, somewhere in that neighborhood. Lance, if you could give me a little bit of an overview about Quintilian and the scope of your role and the organization as a whole. I do know from the research that we've done and some of the conversations that you and I have had that not only is the organization focused on providing best-in-class services to Alaska, but also across the United States and into Asia as well. And I know that's a very, very light explanation. Would you mind helping us understand more about Quintilian and specifically your role there as the senior most leader for cyber? Absolutely, Sean. I think the best way to describe Quintilian would be in three parts. The first part is connecting Alaska to each other and the rest of the world, focused on Alaska consumers of broadband and expanding our network to new and remote areas. If you look at a map of the United States and overlay Alaska on that, you can see how large the state is, twice the size of Texas, as big as Western Europe. Now, a lot of people might not have envisioned that, but that is how large Alaska is. So that first area is completing a fiber ring around Alaska, which will benefit all of our Alaska consumers. Our second focus area is to position Alaska to take advantage of its strategic location in the world. We have 1,700 miles of subsea and terrestrial fiber in Alaska, and as we complete that fiber ring, it's also a unique position to be able to connect to Europe with Asia through the Arctic. So that's our second area of focus for broadband. Third, we're looking to take advantage of the high latitude location at the top of the world in Utigavik. Uh, we built a ground station about two years ago that's operational. And we believe this location is a global competitor for polar orbiting satellites, given its highest, it's the highest latitude at 70 degrees in the United States and it's on US soil. So we have the opportunity to expand our ground station footprint. We call this this strategy Alaska in, Alaska out, and Alaska up. So from a from a chief security officer perspective, when I when I came into the company, like I think any new CSO or CISO, you're going to take a look at what your risk posture is and do a risk assessment. So it's the typical responsibilities that a CISO would have accompanied by personnel, security, physical security, mergers and acquisitions, and those types of things. 
Uh, one key aspect of the role is to ensure compliance with our national security agreement with the U.S. government since it's trusted critical infrastructure. So since being there, uh, other than a variety of different cybersecurity solutions, we've worked on aligning our program to the NIST cybersecurity framework and put together a multi-level, a multi-year improvement plan to just constantly, incrementally make risk management decisions to lower organizational risk. I spent a little bit of time working with telecommunication providers who I, I would presume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that likely would be business partners of yours or consumers of some of the services that you provide and the infrastructure. Is my understanding correct on that? Yes, yeah, so we're a middle mile provider, so we're not running the cable to the home yet, but um, we're providing all of the infrastructure in between. So the the great thing, and I'll talk about it, I'm sure, a little bit later, is that since we turned the network on in 2017, we've had like 99.987 availability, so no breaches. And it's high speeds. It's connecting Alaskans to an infrastructure that improves quality of life, from my perspective. Well, I, I think right now, especially with the, the push towards uh, providing more internet access, because it's really become the equalizer in a lot of ways. We were talking a little bit earlier about AI and some of the interesting use cases that can enable, but if you don't have quality, reliable connectivity, you don't have access to the power of all of these technologies. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. You had spent uh, quite some time in the federal government as a very senior leader there, and you also served in our military, uh, specifically the Air Force, I recall. What have you found that your military career, your expertise, I believe years ago you were working with the House of Representatives at one point. Yes. You're coming from a very unique background towards the operating of your security program. How is that knowledge applied in the context of this new mission that you have to provide that high quality internet access, but also the protection of that infrastructure? I know we just saw this in Europe where there was a destruction, what appeared to be intentional destruction of high capacity fiber lines between one part of, I believe it was in France, which then caused massive problems. How have all of these skills and experiences that you've had as a professional, how have those applied to Quintilian as, as a whole and your mission? You're right. There has been subsea fiber cuts, not only in Marseille, but Norway, England, and it's it's been disruptive. So I have a thought on exactly who that would be that's doing that kind of thing, and I don't think those are accidents. I think for all of us in the in the cybersecurity business, we all came from different kinds of backgrounds. You could have gone the academic route. You could have been in the military. You could have been studying all different kinds of code in your basement. But I, I think that what leads us to, I think, these kinds of positions is that the accumulation of different kinds of experiences. So within the military, you know, it's a, it's a yes, sir kind of environment, solve that problem, go on to the next one. In the federal sector, there's a lot more focus on compliance and risk management. I mean, risk management to an amazing degree, if you consider the requirements of NIST Special Pub 853. 
you know, and like an intelligence community member, you could have a thousand different systems that are responsible to meeting a thousand security controls for each of those systems. If you do the math, there's not enough staff to keep up with that. So it requires different kinds of thinking and solutions to secure those kind of environments. Even within the House of Representatives, which was kind of an interesting tour that I would write um, white papers to solve problems, but those, those white papers couldn't be presented unless a congressman asked about them. Writing for the sake of having it at the ready then? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have it at wow. the ready. You have it in your pocket. If it comes up in conversation, yes, yes, Congressman, I, I think that's a great idea. We've even thought about this as well. Let us talk to you about what we believe the way ahead is. So for us, I think this is about being adaptable, solving problems, reducing organizational risk. Sometimes that flies in the in the face of compliance, of going down through a list of things. Even when you talk about a critical infrastructure, if you think about how critical infrastructure systems are designed and they're not modular, they're all different kinds of solutions built by all different kinds of people, a lot of smart people, but it's not the same as if you built an enterprise at one agency and an enterprise at another agency. So there's a lot of similarities going towards the modularity kind of design in critical infrastructure. There's not a lot of modularity. So that uniqueness is in itself a, a protection. But I mean, I think long story short, the, the accumulation of experiences and seeking employment in places where you can try to solve problems I mean, that's, for me, always been something that I've enjoyed. I mean, some people like different kinds of environments, but I feel that um, I feel best when I'm solving a problem and making something better. You said earlier how we all come from different paths in terms of our careers. You know, you mentioned whether it's a amateur researcher doing work at home, uh, maybe poking around some software poking around technology that they find fascinating, which then translates into cybersecurity. Something that I have seen across other organizations is helping veterans that are coming out of uh, their tour or their term of services to find them, to take their existing skill set and apply it into the cybersecurity space. Now, obviously, you're a pioneer in a lot of this because you served the country for so many years and then continued serving in a different capacity as well for somebody that and i have a friend of mine that just came out of the marines and he's going through a similar program right now what do you feel as somebody that has been in the service has built a great reputation and wants to transition into cyber and maybe that wasn't there or you maybe that was something else what would you say to somebody that's today thinking okay I, i'm eight years in Maybe I'll go to 20, maybe not. Maybe I'll go into private industry or maybe uh, maybe I go into another type of service. Right. So I think the first step is reflection. What kind of person are you? So uh, I had this experience where uh, I was at an organization with a very large team, but not necessarily the productivity of a large team. So I asked one of my division chiefs to read a message to Garcia. It's by Hubbard. The setting is 1899, Spanish-American War. That particular piece of work talks about 
dedication, focus, honesty, integrity. And the reason I had that read to the team was, can we identify with this work? of what goes on in this. And I don't want to go into the story. I mean, I think everybody should read a message to Garcia. There's a lot of different things that it means. Cybersecurity is not for tourists. It's not for somebody that wants to go in and, hey, I might like this. It's just like I'm saying, before you go in, you need to know inside yourself that you have the passion and the drive and the focus to be able to solve problems because our business is all about solving problems and reducing risk. And some of the problems are really challenging. And sometimes the amount of problems seems like a mountain. So the kind of person that can help in that environment is somebody who has passion and dedication and focus, somebody that's able to prioritize things that are important and, and risks. So for me, I, I would first say, reflect on, do you really want to get into this business? Because it's not an easy business to work in. The second part is that, you know, I was asked at a different conference, where do the best cybersecurity analysts come from? Is it academia? Is it the military? Is it the apartment where the guys are in the dark for uh, 23 hours a day working on coding or gaming or whatever they're doing? And my answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's, it's yes. It is all of the above, but depending on passion, how, how hard is, is somebody, how much effort is somebody going to be uh, provide to read new technology, read about new exploits, read about new code, because knowledge is power and knowledge helps you solve problems. So to me, I think there's just a mountain of information out on the internet. I mean, Harvard University has all kinds of free classes. There's free classes and a number of different vendors that are provided. A lot of that um, education is and is, is basically free. It's just, do you want it? Do you want to know? And if you do want to know, the data is there. You can go and download all different kinds of open source tools. You could even use chat, GBT, and other things to try to figure out how to solve different problems. So for me, I just think that if you have the passion and you want to do it, no matter what background you come from, I think you could be successful in this field. The access to resources, to your point, is really unprecedented. That's how I see it. We're studying for my CISSP in the early 2000s. And the only resources that we had at the time were the Hal Tipton books. And Sean Harris had released the very first CISSP study guide. And those two collections were the source of truth that existed back then. And this is even pre-Google searches. Everyone was still asking right. Jeeves and, and Yahoo and finding good data was, I mean, YouTube wasn't even a thing. So to your point, I, I think there is a ton of opportunity for the next generation of, of practitioners and leaders to really lean in. I like how you said that it's not the type of work that you just kind of come in and do a tour of and say, oh, all right, that, that was fun uh, because of how much is involved in it. Yeah, it, it was kind of a, one of my last tours in the Air Force. Um, I was assigned uh, 
headquarters, Pacific Air Force is at, at Hickam in Hawaii. I was assigned uh, to be chief of physical security for all of the SCI facilities in the Pacific. And I was also assigned computer security at the time because this was 94. So not only was I going and uh, evaluating the facilities for compliance with SCI, I was also going and, and diagramming all of the computer systems. So that was like my first real introduction to cyber. And it was basically a deep dive because it included physical security and computer security. So that that challenge and then later having another position as a cybersecurity control assessor and leading a group of people through that. So when I when I mentioned that, sometimes it's the accumulation of activities. It wasn't that I had a goal of being a CISO or CSO or anything. It's just all of a sudden you look at a CISO position and ask, well, have you done this? And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, we you, you and I, we've done these things. And I'm like, oh, dang. So all of a sudden you're like, so that's, that's something that I could definitely sink my teeth into. What have you found to be the most different in terms of your role at Quintillion and some of the challenges that you have found to be unique to that business and to the mission? I think for many of us, myself included, the uh, a scope of what would be engaged across not just the cyber piece, the physical security piece, section protection of human life, all of these things that are aspects of what we're responsible for. When you're talking across the technology that you're enabling, both terrestrial and otherwise, that scope just, it seems mind boggling. So for, for me, I, I can kind of compare um, subsea fiber to a satellite. When you design a subsea network, it's going to be in the ocean for 20 years, 25 years. The same way a satellite, when it's developed, once it's launched, it's done. You've provided, if you address cybersecurity, great. If you didn't, oh, well, there's nothing that you can really do about it. That's how I liken the, the two together. Our chief technology officer designed a great network that goes around Alaska. He focused on access management and lease privilege and network segmentation. All really, to me, important things. I mean, uh, when you reduce access or have very little visibility of what, what we have, great. On the other hand, we're in the Arctic. So when we were installing the ground antenna, uh, 3.7 meter dish, you do that during the winter time. You don't do it during the summer. You have to do it during winter because during the summer, permafrost is all soft. So when you're laying cable inland or from a cable landing station out or to an antenna, you're basically having to trench through basically frozen ground. And that's the desired way to do because if it's not frozen, it's like a marsh. So it's very difficult to go through. So you want it to be frozen. But our vice president of network engineering is sitting on top of a pedestal, putting a ray dome on a 3.7 meter dish in February. It's 30 degrees below zero and high wind. And this guy, who is amazing, is is putting the little nuts and bolts together to put the ray dome together. So I'm saying that that's kind of different, right? 
It's not something yeah, it's that people <laughs> normally normally experience. So uh, as we go forward and we complete the ring around Alaska that we're that one of our focus areas and build 8,000 kilometers of subsea cable to go to Japan, that kind of work, it just requires a lot of planning up front. And you have to figure out what your cybersecurity piece is, but you have to make sure that you know, all of your fiber is lit. Uh, Are you going to put any additional sensors on it? So it's almost like you're designing a network that you're not going to be able to do a lot once it's in the water. And as you can imagine, how do you wind up 7,000 kilometers of armored subsea cable? Well, it's hard. It takes a bunch of ships. So there are all of those different kinds of challenges. And then you have on the personnel side, you have personnel screening, physical security side. As you might imagine, on the Ala- in Alaska, in the Arctic, when I was looking at different Arctic uh, cable landing station, I was like, I think we could put a bigger fence here because I'm thinking traditional right. <laughs> uh, physical security. And and Dan, our uh, VP of network engineering, he says, it doesn't matter how tall you put the fence up, there's going to be so much snow that you'll be able to walk over the top of the fence. So oh, yeah. and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, really? And I wasn't sure if I believed that until he was out at one of the sites and he took a picture of the top of the fence post. And, <laughs> and the snow is on both sides of it. So you could walk over the top of it or you could drive a snow machine over the top of it. So it's, it's just, uh, it's different things to consider and you have to weigh all of those different kinds of potential vulnerabilities and do your best to make them as secure as possible. I mean, it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah, though, that's very different. I certainly wouldn't have considered that as being one method to easily bypass a physical control like that. You just climb on the snow. Yeah, so, so the funny, the, the other funny thing was not so much of a funny thing is that with all of our cable landing stations, there's basically like a two-door system. So one where you're inside the facility, you walk into an entryway. It, it looks like a man trap kind of thing. but it has a window in the door where you can look out and look down underneath where the stairs are to make sure there's a polar bear not sitting there waiting for you to come out of the facility. <laughs> so so that's uh, who would have thought that you could write physical security measure uh, polar bears are good as long as they don't meet our people, you know. <laughs> I think the closest I ever got to that was when I was CISO at a financial company here in California, and we had to put rattlesnake warnings because during the summer, uh, as the temperatures got hotter, there wasn't enough coverage for them to hide from the heat because, you know, they really can't control their body temperature. So they would just love to just crawl up into somebody's car because it's it's cooler than it is there and then at night if they're you know they're coming and going that's the closest but i I think i'd rather deal with rattlesnakes than the polar bear (laughs) (laughs) and i'm equally scared of both the polar bear you know you can't really stop them (laughs) right Right. all you can do is stay in the building you're not gonna outrun it And uh, whatever the security policy you throw in front of it, it can't read. So that's not going to (laughs) help. This cable that's been put down there. How deep does that go? 
Well, typically on the Arctic side, you're burying it probably about 15 feet deep. And the reason is, is that you have to make sure when everything is frozen, including the water around the coastline, that frozen water can move across the bottom of where the cable is buried. So you have to make sure it's buried deep enough so that ice scour does not touch the cable. And of course, you trench it in. Once you're out a certain amount of feet, then it's just going to be where the water is not going to be frozen. You can lay it in. We do marine surveys to make sure that we lay it in the smartest way possible so it's not exposed to that kind of threat. What is ice scour? I don't think I've ever heard that term before. Ice scour would be, if you think, uh, if you put like a bowl of water in your freezer and it freezes all the way to the bottom of the bowl, then think if you're out in the ocean, now that ice body can move. Mm. It might move east, west, along the coastline. So it scrapes, it can scrape the bottom of the of the ocean where you're close to the coast that's what ice scour is i see so that's definitely a threat vector that i would imagine your engineers have to plan for that consistently Absolutely. Then. Absolutely. Oh, that's, that's fascinating now, when it comes to the the cyber side of this uh, obviously running high capacity lines all over the globe with that focus going into Asia and Alaska, what are you seeing from a threat landscape? Do you find it to be fairly similar to, obviously using the example of ice scour, right? Very different than what many other CISOs have to contend with, but from the cyber threats perspective, do you find that it's the same or are they slightly different where maybe the advanced actors are focusing on different things. And, and of course, I know that there's probably some of this that you can't get into details on. Are you still finding that operationally, it's a lot of what you are doing in other organizations, or are there also additional nuances that you thought, oh, okay, I've run into this before, but maybe not in this way? Advanced persistent threat actors, you know, different groups focus on different kinds of things. When I was at Iron Mountain, Iron Mountain has a lot of banking data. so. There's certain countries that and APT actors that focus on, let's see what we can get access to banking-wise. Uh, since we're critical infrastructure, we, we do see normal threats pounding on the perimeter. But with our national security agreement, DHS monitors and even tests our perimeter as well. So in reviewing firewall logs, I can see where those threats are coming from and all different kinds of attempts, different kinds of challenges, just to make sure that our security solutions are working properly. So at our last board meeting, I explained to the board, because sometimes it looks non-threatening when I say, no, no, there's been no issues, that there's been zero successful attempts, and it doesn't sound like a lot. But then I printed out the firewall logs and say, but by the way, These are the people that are pounding on our door, and one of them is a partner, DHS, that's trying to make sure this critical infrastructure is secure by throwing all different kinds of exploits at it. And, you know, our protections are successful, but I was trying to explain that just because I'm not telling you that or I'm telling you that, oh, our perimeter is uh, secure, I wanted to explain that that doesn't mean that a lot of people aren't banging on the door constantly. It just means that the security devices that we have in place are working as they're supposed to. So 
I mean, in that way, it's similar. I mean, I know we're on some people's target list, but I, I don't think we're being hit by an APT actor. Uh, I, th- I think it would have seen something more sophisticated. Um, I think a lot of times people look at broadband providers and they're like, hey, this, this is a good target or critical infrastructure, this is a good target. But we have such a small attack surface and manage it in such a way that I'm not seeing a lot of issues, luckily. That's an interesting way of exposing to your stakeholders on the business side. It's not just saying, hey, we're okay. It's look at the all of the stuff that's quite interested in us in terms of that quantification of whether it's active threats or just the ongoing nature of managing cybersecurity risk. What do you find being most top of mind for you today, either from emerging technologies, whether that's generative AI, that's the rise and beginnings of quantum computing, and how that might impact our industry as a whole. For example, quantum computing could hypothetically tear apart our understanding of cryptography and the implementation of encryption. Are there any of these technologies that you're seeing that have you either concerned or excited? So within within our company, there's a lot of interest on artificial intelligence, how to use it, I mean, for good. And we are using it to a degree for, for good things, but at the same time, having to realize some of the challenges of like, uh, well, when that content is created, you don't own the content. The fact that you ask the question is in somebody's repository, you don't own that either. And uh, I've even brought up that anything that's been generated from that, you can't claim to have written that because it was written by an engine someplace else. Or you could say John Doe and... AI wrote this article. So you you can't claim it for your own. They have a couple of kids. uh, My younger kids are still in college. And I've already talked to them about using artificial intelligence and the fact that a teacher only has to submit your paper to chat GBT4 and says, "Did, uh, did AI write this paper? And if the answer is yes, you fail. You've yeah, you're done. <laughs> you know, but, but at the same time, I'm like, but there's a lot of great uses for analysis. I mean, my daughter is studying political science, and she was trying to look at the different kinds of factors of countries that were communists and are no longer communists, and how, how do those associate, and how did they overcome different things? So I'm like, okay, there, there's a value right there. The same way if you need scripts in some particular language and say, hey, could you write me an automation script in Python to do X, Y, and Z? And it's like, boom, here you are. And I'm like, wow, great. Um, how we're using that, I mean, for our critical infrastructure, I don't see a lot of use. For polar orbiting satellites that could be using our ground antenna, definitely concerned with how quantum would break that. But I'm not going to be so worried about that because I know that all of the government and NSA encryption and other encryption that's used from satellite downlinks, uh, 
that's somebody else's problem to solve. I mean, I could worry <laughs> about it a little bit, but I know I can't solve that one. So in our, you know, the way our business is, is like solve what you can solve and leave the other things for somebody else. I think because we have an FCC license, we have to make sure that we're not using from a supply chain risk management perspective, we have to make sure that we're not using Yway, ZTE or, or other things that might be on that list. So that that is a concern. But it's also pretty easy to comply with. My concern is that for a large project like building a subsea fiber to Japan, in that, how do we manage supply chain risk management of all kinds of things that are going to be on different ships that are laying cable? I mean, it's a, that's, that's kind of a hard problem. The other thing is, is that, and it's not necessarily a threat directly at Quintillion, but my concern a lot of times is how many Chinese professors and Chinese citizens are at American universities where we're also developing innovations related to infrastructure or solving problems because there's a long history of that kind of data being stolen and provided back where a particular university might have invested millions of dollars and man hours on developing something and then it's just plucked out of that environment and given to somebody else. The same way that companies that do business in China, they've gone over. And if you're building windmills or whatever, you might have heard that story of windmills or turbines. Well, the government built another plant across the street and basically stole all of the technology from the company and then basically said, oh, we, we no longer have a use for your technology. It's because they've stolen it all and they've replicated the manufacturing at another plant. So my concern is that those products affect us in a way that it could be your PCs, your laptops, any kind of a smart technology that you're using in your house or in cars. So there's an impact there. Can I solve that? No. Do you want multi-factor authentication and hopefully there's no backdoor? Yes. That a bit on my radar. But right now, I, I think the heavy focus is as soon as we get all of our ducks aligned with our Pacific route, it's going to be a lot of focus there to make sure that is a good, resilient system for the next 20, 25 years. Back a little bit to chat GBT. I think there's some real promising things there, and I've talked to my, to my wife and kids about some of, those, some of those uses. I mean, some kind of innovative projects from a family perspective, but at the same time, I can't help but to think about that uh, Johnny Depp movie, Transcendence, and how quickly that evolution could happen. And, and you know, I see some people are scared of how fast this, this could morph and how do you control it? Well, some things are hard to control, right? Yeah, and sometimes you just kind of have to go with it and see where it goes. Lance, thank you for spending the time with us today. I always enjoy hearing from you and your perspectives and getting a completely different understanding of the complexities that other leaders are having to deal with. I will definitely be on the lookout for a polar bear next time I walk out. <laughs> Uh, uh, very appreciative of your time today, Lance. Uh, thank you again, and hopefully we get to do this again. It's always a pleasure, Sean. I appreciate thank you, Lance. It. Take care. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Crudico. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe. 
Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com.